Okay, we are up to the sixth church in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 3, if you want to, to turn there. And as with the letters to all seven of the churches listed in Revelation, the key to understanding the basis of the message lies in the opening words, how Jesus is described and how he addresses the church. Now, the city of Philadelphia and its history were really unique. And it's that uniqueness that serves as the background to this letter. It goes back even before the city was founded to the reign and the policies of Alexander the Great. His goal was not just military conquest. It was cultural conquest. He was convinced of the superiority of Greek language and culture. And he set out to conquer, not just to conquer, but to convert the world to Greek customs and language. He was so successful, in fact, that long after his death and the breakup of his kingdom, the cultural conquest continued. Even mighty Rome fell under its sway, so much so that Greek, not Latin, became the common language used throughout the empire. In the middle of the second century BC, there was a king in Pergamum named Attalus who had two great obsessions. One was for all things Greek. He sent, at one point, a number of colonists to establish a new settlement near the border with one overriding purpose in mind. It was to be a mission center. Missions not of religion, but of culture. It was built on the main highway that connected the west with the east, often referred to as the gateway or the door to the east, an idea which becomes central to Jesus' message And their task was, through peaceful means, to spread Greek language and influence into new regions. The other passion of Attalus was a deep, abiding love for his brother. And in naming their city, the colonists sought to honor their king, and so they named it after him. It was called the City of the One Who Loves His Brother, or Philadelphia. These colonists proved to be very faithful to their colony, or to their calling, they soon discovered that the door before them really was wide open. So successful, in fact, were they in their mission endeavors that within 150 years, the people of that entire region had forgotten their own language and were all but Greek. That history and their faithfulness to the city charter as a mission center would quickly come to people's mind as Jesus addresses the church at Philadelphia, commending them for their faithful witness. And as a result, it stands alongside of Smyrna as the only churches with which Christ finds no fault, no words of condemnation. Because of their faithfulness, they became the church of the open door. The scripture says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What sets this church apart isn't their size or their resources. It's how they were responding to Jesus in their midst. Seen in the opening words how Jesus is described, he uses three terms. He's described as these are the words of him who is holy. To be holy means he's different. He's set apart. Holiness is fundamental to the nature and character of God. 32 times 
in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel, the one who's different from all others. In Isaiah, he said, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. In other words, I am holy. Because he is different, he insisted that people treat him differently from all the other things in life. In a world filled with temples and idols and greed and self-interest and personal opinion and talk show hosts and blogs of every shape and size where everyone is an expert, we need to hear from the one who is different, the one who stands apart. These are the words of him who is holy. That idea of God's holiness, though it can be sometimes hard to grasp because in some respects, we've become overly familiar with him. We stress what a friend we have in Jesus, but we forget the cry of Isaiah when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple. He cried out or heard the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He's different. And Isaiah saw that. And it says, he cried out and said, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, the one who is different. God is holy. God is different. We can't forget that. God may be love. Jesus may call us friends, but he's not just like any other thing in your life. He's not another one of the guys. He's different. One of the weaknesses of Christianity today is that we so emphasize those wonderful truths of his love and his closeness that we've forgotten that he's not like us. And therefore, we cannot treat God just like we do any other hobby or interest we may have. We're commanded, in fact, to set him apart to make him holy, to give him a special place in our hearts and our lives so he doesn't have to compete with all the other things that keep us so busy running around. This means we can't place him in some box or the corner of our lives and leave him there till we're ready or we want something. As a holy God, we give him a place that's unique. Throughout the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, God refuses to be treated Just like one more thing, and time after time after time, judgment comes when that is forgotten by his people. He refuses to compete for your affections or for your attention. He sets us apart. He calls us to become holy, to be different also, to become a part of what he wants to do in the world. That's what Peter's talking about when he said, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belongs to God specifically for the purpose of declaring the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. One commentator said, holiness is not a choice, it's a way of life. Because God is holy, as we seek him, he draws us into his holiness. That's foundational to God, but it's also foundational to the Christian life. Be holy, the scripture declares, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in revealing himself here at the beginning of this letter to Philadelphia, 
as the one who is holy. Jesus saying that the church that is faithful, the person who is faithful is the one that sets him apart, that doesn't treat him the way they treat everything else in life. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Do not fear what the world fears, and do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart, make holy, Christ is Lord. He's not just the one who is holy. It also says he is the one who is true. The particular form here of the word for true means he's real. He has true substance to him. So much religion today is based on personal ideas and opinions and speculations and desires. But there's a truth to Christ that goes far beyond that. The empty tomb proves it. There's a reality to Christ and our faith that others lack. Our faith is not just words and doctrines and something we talk about. There has to be a substance to it in our life. A reality that goes beyond the words and the prayers we say. When we fall into the thinking that our faith is merely a set of beliefs to hold, there's no substance behind it. No reality. And yet Jesus is he who is holy, he who is true, who is real. Therefore, he makes a real difference in our life. The faithful church, the faithful believer, is the one who sets apart Christ as Lord, not just in word, but in reality. And it does this, we do this, because we recognize his rightful place and authority as the Son of God, which is the reference, the third reference here, when he is the one who holds the key of David. That's a reference to authority. In chapter 1, verse 18 of Revelation, it refers to the keys, holding the keys of death and Hades, the one who holds the key to salvation and judgment. The one who holds the key of David is the one who alone can open the door to provide access to God. The one who has the right, the ability to act and to make decisions. We all run into certain problems if we're not willing to allow Christ to truly be Lord, to have that authority. And instead running our own way, making our own decisions based on what, not what, who God is, but what we want, what we feel, what we like, where we have control, where we have authority. Yet Christ is revealed here as the one with authority to open and to shut the one who holds authority over life itself. What he opens, it says, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. The commendation and the promises which follow for the church at Philadelphia arise from their faithfulness. They had set him apart. There's a reality to their faith, and they were living under his authority. Verse 8 goes on to say, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice it's not their size or their numbers or even their accomplishment that he cares about here. It's faithfulness to their calling. We can get caught up in our abilities, comparing ourselves with others, thinking our value is determined by what we do or accomplish or achieve to prove our worth. And he tells the church, I know your deeds, that you're weak, but you're true. You hold on. God cares more about your faithfulness to him than your strength and your achievements. 
This isn't the first time an open door is mentioned in the New Testament. When Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote to the Corinthians and said he was going to stay there because he says a great door for effective work has been opened to him. In 2 Corinthians, he wrote of an open door when he said, when I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. To the Colossians, he wrote, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now remember, Philadelphia was a mission city. Mission for Greek culture. But Jesus says, I've opened a door for you to be on mission. Speaking to a church in a city which was remembering their city charter, their culture, the doors they had found open for that, they would have understood this was his call to them to be on mission also to take advantage of the opportunity that God was opening for them. Opportunities, he says, weren't dependent on their size or their strength. And maybe that's it, though. They realized that when they were weak, they could rely on God. They were open to the movements of God. Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. When we refuse to acknowledge our weakness, and keep up that facade of strength. We're saying we want God on our terms. But we set apart Christ as Lord, set him apart in our life, we make him a reality, we acknowledge his authority, then we can be faithful to doing the things he wants us to do, to fulfilling his call for us to be on mission also. We can worry about our failures or saying the wrong things or not knowing what to say to others, but it's Christ that opens the opportunities, that opens the doors. Our duty and our commitment to missions, to Christ's mission, must go beyond a special offering a few times a year, beyond giving money to others to do the work. It must include our own involvement also. We have a story to tell, and we have a Savior to proclaim. When we tell... When we proclaim, we are being missionaries also. It's not just those we send the gift to to help them do their work. But we're called to be on mission wherever we are with our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our family members who need to hear about Christ. We become Christ's representatives to them. Paul uses the term his ambassadors in Corinthians. The church with the open door is the one with unlimited opportunities because Christ is in their midst. And it's significant that the church that received the greatest praise in Revelation that remained most faithful was the one that was based on and faithful to missions. How about us? How can we as individuals and as church be faithful to our mission? It has to be more than giving to others to do it. We have to take advantage of opportunities too to build those bridges to the community like we're seeking to do next month with the block party. But it has to be more than simply doing the work. We have to seek to talk to people, to share with them, to build bridges. Next year, we're planning a possible mission trip possibly to Taiwan or to China where we may be helping a church there in VBS or children's ministry Is God calling some of us to be a part of that mission trip? Will you pray about the possibility that he has a job for you there? 
It doesn't just have to be something we organize. Every year, there, we have sister churches here on Oahu that go on trips to various places through the islands, on the mainland, different parts of the world, doing a variety of activities from building needs to prayer walking to special projects that are looking for others, not just from their church, but from churches like ours to join with them. If you're interested and open to that, let me know and I can connect you with them. Christ is the one that opens the door. The question is, are we willing to go through? He continues to call us to be active in his work and seize the opportunities while the doors are open. But to be involved, to be on mission. Henry Ironside said, the point is that we may not see how to accomplish the work. We may only see darkness, but God doesn't. If he has opened the door, he will provide, and faithfulness leads us through that door. The path of faithfulness leads to God's presence. Christ who opens the door. And the promises then that follow in verses 9 through 13 are based upon that. This open door Christ spoke of shaped the promises themselves. Words that the church would have found comforting in a small, struggling congregation where people were trying to keep them in their place. They were being told by Jews that the door of, to God was shut because they weren't of the right heritage and nationality and ethnic group. They weren't of the chosen people. Yet Jesus says the promise is that that door is open. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, he says, who claim to be Jews that they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The Gentiles were telling them that the door of life and happiness was shut to them because they were too idealistic, fooling themselves by holding on to their faithfulness. Yet Jesus promises that door is open. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, he said, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That powerful were telling them that the door of security was locked to them, that they could be blown away in a moment because they were weak. Yet Jesus says, the door is open. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar, a permanent fixture in the temple of my God. Never, never again will he leave it. They were being told by those who considered themselves enlightened and educated, the philosophers that so characterized Greek society, that the door to progress was closed to them. Yet Jesus promises that door is open as he says his children will take on his name or his character when he says, I will write on him the name of my God. And I will write also my own name. They were told by the Roman government that they didn't belong, that they were outcasts, that the door to belonging was closed to them. And yet Jesus promises that the door is wide open. They were going to be part of the new Jerusalem, citizens of heaven. When he said, I will write on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. Jesus, the door himself, is the one who, remain, is, who remains faithful. He who has an ear, the scripture says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What voices are speaking to us, telling us not get involved, don't use your gifts? What keeps you from seeing what is open before you? The letter to the church at Philadelphia was a 
commendation for faithfulness to their calling. And it's interesting because over the centuries that followed, the city of Philadelphia, which was an early mission center for Hellenistic culture, became home to a vibrant church on mission, commended for their faithfulness, promised an open door that no one can shut. And over the centuries, they watched as one by one, the other six churches in Revelation fell at the hand of Turkish and Muslim invaders and ceased to exist. They alone remained till 1391 as a bastion of Christianity and Christian mission in the region. And even today, in that part of the world often hostile to the gospel, Alasir, which is the name of the city built on Philadelphia's ruins, continues to have a Christian witness. He who is holy, he who is true, he who holds the key of David, stands before us to open the door that none can shut. If we're willing to learn from the church at Philadelphia to be faithful to that heavenly calling, to take advantage of the opportunities that God provides for us to be on mission with him, to not let laziness or apathy keep us. It's so much easier sometimes simply to come and sit, easier to let others do the work, to do all the planning, the serving. It's easier to let someone else do the teaching, to someone else do the giving. But it would have been easier for God to simply look the other way and forget about us too, but he didn't. He couldn't because love wouldn't allow it. He not only said it, he did something about that love. For God so loved that he sent Christ to face rejection and betrayal. He so loved that he sent Christ to face mockery of a trial and cruel jokes of soldiers. He loved so much he sent Christ to be slapped and spat upon. He loved so much he sent Christ to be nailed to a piece of wood and hung on a hill for the world to see. He loved so much he suffered and died, but he rose again to set us free from the power of sin and death, to have new life, to be right with God if we're willing to walk through that door. For God so loved the world, he wants every one of us to become a part of it. And that's what he offers to us if we haven't accepted it. For God so loved, he makes all who believe people through whom his love can be expressed to others if we're faithful, if we're willing to be involved in what he wants to do. Are we willing? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you did so love and do so love and will so love that we have a security and a future, not just to gather and to meet, but to go and to serve and to share and like that ancient city of Philadelphia, to be grounded on the mission that you have given to your people. To go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. To be your witnesses, not just here at home, but as it says in Acts, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Help us to be a part of that mission, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
you.